Good morning, First Baptist Church. We're very glad you're here today. So when was the last time you were compelled to lie to someone? It could have been this morning. Maybe somebody came up to you and said, well, well, how do I look? And maybe to preserve their feelings, you fibbed a bit. It could have been to preserve someone's insecurities about uh, their performance, perhaps, after a, uh, a concert or something like that. But you were faced with something, and you didn't feel comfortable giving the truth. Maybe it was for self-preservation. You'd been called out on something you had done wrong, and you knew you did something wrong. Maybe you were somewhere you weren't supposed to be, so you lied to someone about where you were. And perhaps there were some scriptures burning in your mind. Maybe you felt a little hot on the back of the neck. I mean, after all, the text says, Leviticus 19.11, you shall not lie to one another. Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. And Colossians 3.9, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. But is there a time when lying is Okay. What about those situations we've seen in history? One of the classics is usually from the World War II era. You were a spy. You were working with Allied forces. Then you were captured by the Germans. You knew the French resistance was with you. They were behind you. You knew if you told the truth, thousands of lives were going to be lost. And this was an opportunity to lead German forces in the wrong direction. What about then? A simple lie could lead the enemy forces to make calculated mistakes in their preparations and help the allied cause immensely. Or what about this family? You may not know who they are. Uh, they were Dutch. Their last name is Ten Boom. They were hiding Jews in their homes, and they were faced with some very hard choices when hiding Jews during Nazi occupation in the Netherlands. Jews who were captured were often sent uh, to Amsterdam, and from there they went to Germany, and then they were never heard from again. For the most part, this family believed that they were right in lying to the Germans who came knocking at their door as to whether or not they were hiding Jews, but there was one member of the family that didn't feel that way. Nolly, Corey's sister, thought it was wrong to lie at all. She was an absolutist. And her unwillingness to lie, even though the family actually would practice lying from time to time, Corey Tenboom admitted she found it treacherously easy to lie to the Germans. Nolly didn't think that was the case. Her unwillingness to lie actually led to the arrest of one of the young Jews that had lived with them. Corey felt this was an exceptional circumstance and denounced her sister's position as rigid honesty. So the question I want to deal with this morning, is it ever okay to lie? Is it ever okay to lie? The text we're going to look at this morning comes from 1 Samuel chapter 19, verses 1 through 17. And listen to the stories of a brother and sister, Jonathan and Michael, as they knew that their, uh, their beloved friend and husband was in danger for his life. So please stand with me as we read 1 Samuel chapter 19, 
verses 1 through 17. And Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David, and Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. And there was war again. And David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing the lyre. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he eluded Saul so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him that he might kill him in the morning. But Michael, David's wife, told him, if you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michael took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? You may be seated. We're working through the book of Samuel about trusting in times of transition. And we're seeing these twists and these turns as we watch God's plan being laid out and it playing forth. And the people at times will be challenged as to whether or not they're going to put their trust in God or they're going to put their trust in this king. And now we're dealing with this challenging issue this morning. As you just heard, some people were involved in deception and some lies. And David is enduring the rage of this madman. And I want to approach this very challenging uh, subject this morning like this. I want to look at it in terms of then, that these characters were reading about, what it meant in their context to be doing what they were doing, and that God's servants were at times compelled to lie. And then we're going to look at the timeless truth of this passage, that sometimes situations may permit lying. And then we'll bring it into our common uh, our, our current context, what are possible exceptions and other possibilities? We're going to look at this very closely and very carefully because, as you heard in the beginning, those verses are true. God detests lies. 
Satan is the father of lies. So let's look at this passage. Let's go back. Because we see at times God's servants have been compelled to lie. Two people in our passage today, brother and sister, Jonathan, Michael. Michael was humble. He loved David dearly. And he deceived his own father, the king, by the way, in order to protect the life of David. So against the king's wishes, he tells David to hide so he wouldn't be killed, and then convinces his father about David, says, look, you don't sin against him. And for a time, his father agrees. This is a bad idea. He listened to Jonathan. But then we get down to verse 9. We see that David wins another battle, and then that spirit again comes upon Saul. And he just can't live with David going on living. So then some, some interesting conniving activities happen. David's wife, Michael, lowers him out of a window. Saul's going to set spies on their house to kill him in the morning. Secretly, she lowers him down out of this window. Then puts this household idol that tells you how badly things are going. But they have this household idol that she takes, she it looks like a man. She lays it in the bed, puts a wig-looking type of thing on the head of this idol. And then she gets caught in her lie. She tells the guards of Saul that, well, David's sick. He's laying there real still. His hair doesn't look quite right. I don't know exactly what she told him. We have what, what's said in the text there. But then she gets caught. And this is from a slightly different translation than the one I read, read earlier because the threat gets a little bit more clear. This is from the New English translation. It says, Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me this way by sending my enemy away? Now he has escaped. Michael replied to Saul, he said to me, help me get away or else I will kill you. Pretending that David was threatening her life. So there are these moments in the scriptures where these biblical characters, esteemed biblical characters, tell a lie. And there's no condemnation to their actions. We see this in different places in Judges 4. Jael uh, pretended to offer protection to Sisera, this commander of the Canaanite armies, drew him into her tent where she stuck him with a spike, killed him. But the narrative seems to rejoice in what she had done that she was a woman of courage and resourcefulness. And then the Hebrew midwives in Exodus chapter 1, the Egyptian pharaoh tried to tell them that you need to kill the, the, the boys that are being born among the Hebrews. He wanted to control their population. But because these midwives were God-fearing women, they would not obey the king. And they allowed these boys to live as well. When the pharaoh demanded an explanation as to what was happening, they said, well, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I don't know. Then in 2 Kings 6, Elisha the prophet lied to some Syrian soldiers. They were temporary, temporarily, uh, temporarily confused or blinded. He led them right into the Israelite camp. Interesting, they let him go after a big dinner. And then one of the most famous, Rahab the prostitute told a lie to the king of Jericho to, to save two Israelite spies. And the New Testament authors unanimously 
praise her actions as works of faith in Hebrews 11 and James 2. So these biblical characters are willing to choose what they believe is the higher good in doing what they did, even at personal risk to themselves, to help an innocent person. So then what do we make of this? What's the timeless truth we can draw from this passage and, and others like it in the Bible? And I want to look at this from a, a big picture uh, perspective in the scriptures because there's a timeless aspect of this that some situations we see in the scriptures may permit lying. Now we need to be very clear, first of all, that sin is always sin. And then other than some of these very specific circumstances, other than these very rare circumstances, lying is absolutely sinful. As I said before, Satan is called the father of lies. And in in our case, most of us are not going to go through these kinds of experiences, you know, and a lie would be sin. Uh, and, And exceptions to this, again, are extremely rare. Most of us has never been in a spy war zone kind of a situation. Most of us have never had a madman who was a king trying to spear us. Or house spies who were God's covenant people. Or have been asked to murder babies. And historically the church was not quite sure how to deal with these passages. Uh, And it gets very interesting when you go back and start understanding, well, how did the church fathers and uh, prominent figures in church history deal with this. And I want to step back for a moment and just walk through some different thoughts from different figures through church history. I want to start with Augustine. And Augustine lived around 300 AD. He has some very interesting comments about Rahab and these Hebrew midwives. He said, he, he praised the midwives and Rahab for the compassion of their intention, but condemned them for the iniquity of their invention. He's kind of playing both sides of the fence on this. Praising them and condemning them. So that's about 300 AD. And then moving forward to Thomas Aquinas. He was an Italian Dominican friar. He was a philosopher. He was a priest. He was considered the doctor of the church around 1200 AD in the medieval times. And he thought that there were three different classes of lies. He said there were officious lies or helpful lies of necessity. Then he said there were jocose lies that were told in jest. And he said there were mischievous lies or malicious lies told to harm another person or to save face personally. He felt that only category three should be considered sinful. And then moving forward to the time of the Reformation, uh, John Calvin, in uh, regard to Rahab, said her lie, even though told for a good purpose, is contrary to the nature of God. Felt that she was sinning in this. But then the other reformer, Martin Luther, he had a very different take on this. He said a good hearty lie for the sake of the good and for the Christian church, a lie in case of necessity, a useful lie. Now I think that's a fairly libertarian view on this. And then even moving uh, closer to our own times, a man by the name of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I've talked about him several times, involved in the assassination plot on Hitler. Um, he really struggled with these uh, this, this ideas of lies and what they had to do in their plotting to assassinate Hitler. No doubt the deception and lies that 
had to happen for, to set the scene. They weren't successful, obviously, but he made an interesting assertion. He said, the devil may be the father of lies, but there is also, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, a truth which is of Satan. For example, when we pass along the gossip that injures a neighbor, we are not excused simply because it is true. From an article called, Is Lying Always Wrong in Christianity Today? And I believe there's one more excerpt from that same article that does a good job of explaining the proper attitude towards truth. And it states this, Devotion to God should lead us to speak the truth, to love the neighbor, to serve life. In this sad world, however, sometimes we find ourselves in situations where to speak the truth may harm a neighbor or where a lie, as in Rahab's story, may be necessary to preserve the life of a neighbor. Even the instruction not to bear false witness in the Ten Commandments is put in the covenant context of not harming one's neighbor. We live the truth not for its own sake, but for God's sake and for the neighbor's sake. So these are the challenges in struggling through this. And what does this mean in our current context? And I want to talk for a moment about possible exceptions. Now, notice I'm using the word possible. And these are ones that are very rare. And I also want to talk about other possibilities. In other words, if you get stuck in a situation, what are some other possibilities where maybe you wouldn't have to tell a lie? So let's talk about possible exceptions first. I want to suggest two. Again, they're, they're very, very rare, and we've got to be very, very careful on this. Uh, be easy to justify lying when it's self-serving, which is not any of the cases that I see in Scripture. So the first exception would be when protecting innocent life. When protecting innocent life. As a matter of fact, it could be a situation even when maybe you're morally obligated uh, if it's a wartime situation, like in the opening of the sermon, I was talking about this landing on D-Day, where in a situation like that, it might be uh, necessary. As a matter of fact, it was a system of lies that were told to deceive Hitler. So he wouldn't know where that D-Day invasion was going to happen. As a matter of fact, until it's actually going on, he didn't believe it was going to happen in Normandy. He thought it was going to happen somewhere else. Or maybe in a case when you're trying to save someone else's life. You know, the example of Corey Ten Boom and her family risking their own lives to hide Jews in their, in their homes. But notice that none of these situations were lies told for people to save themselves or to avoid punishment for themselves. It was about prevention of the taking of innocent lives. And then a second exception when dealing with a compromised person. Now, what do I mean by a compromised person? Note the mental state of Saul in this passage. The people around him knew very well there was something very wrong with him. That was why they had David come in and play his lyre to begin with. It was to soothe the man who was overcome by this evil spirit. There may be times when you're dealing with a person who is in such a mental state, I'm thinking about dementia or some kind of related illness, when lying could be the more loving approach to someone. There was an article uh, that came out in the Gospel Coalition called Beyond Truth and Fiction, Loving Our Neighbors with Dementia. 
Uh, and it described a woman in that article. She could no longer remember that her husband had died decades earlier. The article goes on to say, what should you say? The last time she heard the truth, she howled and cried, reliving her grief as, if, as though it was the first time. Then after an hour of sobbing, she forgot the entire conversation and asked for her husband again. And she searches your face now. Should you tell her the truth and watch the agony wash over her, or should you spare the pain and fib that, she's, that he's gone out to the store? My heart goes out to those of you who have experienced something like that. So what's the more loving thing to do here? And I believe in a situation like this, I want to look at Ephesians 4.15. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. So there's an important statement about the motivation. Speak the truth, yes, but look at the motive. Are you speaking the truth in love to someone if you force them into a painful reality that they cannot decipher? There was a great Scottish uh, Reformed theologian named Sinclair Ferguson. He spoke to this, uh, the motivation for truth-telling, and he said this, Truth is always said in the context of love because it is never only a matter of speech and words, but of spirit and motive. You can tell the truth, and you can tell the very, very bad motive. It's called gossip. Just because it's true doesn't make it right. So when people can't comprehend reality, uh, at times their needs should be respected. And in the case of telling a painful and incomprehensible kind of truth, it doesn't seem to be honoring that person as a child of God. So those are two potential exceptions. And again, pray through this. Uh, and, and if you're stuck and if you're just feeling guilty about it, uh, talk to somebody. And there's times when we could also consider other possibilities to lying. I want to mention two of those. First of all is the possibility that you could stay silent. In other words, that you just don't respond. Um, going back to the dementia, I'm, I'm sorry. Um, now, there could be consequences to this. But there is a precedent for it in the Bible. When Jesus went before Pilate, he stayed silent. When Pilate asked him, so where do you come from? You may be in a situation where it's best to stay silent. And then a second possibility would be to change the question. To change the question. This takes some skill, and it's not easy to do. But going back to the example of the dementia patient, another tactic uh, could be to understand well, what is their deeper need here, and then respond accordingly. Uh, and from that same article I read earlier, there was a geriatrician. He offered a different response to lying. He used this example. He said, when a patient is asking for and grieving a dead parent, we need to ask ourselves, what is it they're looking for? It may well be love and security. We can respond by hugging them and saying, I love you and we'll take care of you and I know, your, and I know you love your mom and dad. I know you love whoever it was who's gone now. Maybe without saying they're gone now. Well, where are they? Well, they're out. Well, did they take the car? Well, let's see what's on TV. I don't know. These are tough situations. And for those of you uh, who are struggling 
in your workplace, there's a great deal of talk now about compelled gender pronouns in speech. And I think it's important for us not to participate in that particular lie. To love someone enough not to use a preferred gender pronoun that doesn't apply. Now, that doesn't mean you don't use their first name, even if that doesn't necessarily apply. Even if it seems different than their particular gender. But I don't believe it's for the Christian to refer to others by gender pronouns that do not apply to them. And it could cost us. And again, maybe you can stay silent. Maybe you can change the question. Maybe you can keep yourself from being cornered in that way. I'm not saying that would be easy. But in conclusion, I would say, oh, I'm sorry. One note. Be careful what you ask for. In other words, if you choose to ask someone a question that could potentially have a painful answer, you, you take that on yourself. If you're feeling insecure about something you may, wear, may be wearing and you choose to ask someone, well, how do I look? Okay, you're opening up the door. I know better than to ask someone on a Sunday afternoon, hey, what you think of that sermon? All right? I may not be prepared to hear the answer. And if I'm asking that, I might be thinking, hey, that could have been a real stinker today. Maybe somebody can make me feel better. Well, that may go real bad. So be careful what you ask for. And then in conclusion, on rare occasions, when innocent lives are at stake, or dealing with a compromised person, lies could be permissible. It's never a rule. There could be other ways out. But in some rare situations, it could be permissible. I want to close with a story, again, going back to Germany in World War II. In the fall of 1943, some German shoulder, uh, soldiers, they started rounding up Jews in Italy. They were deporting them by thousands to concentration camps. And simultaneously, a mysterious disease called Syndrome K uh, it swept through the city of Rome. It caused dozens of patients to be admitted to a hospital there. The details uh, of the disease were sketchy, but the symptoms included persistent cough, paralysis, and then death. And the disease was also said to be very highly contagious. But Syndrome K was different than other diseases because there was no mention of it in any medical textbooks. Outside of the hospital staff, nobody had heard of it before. It sounded similar to tuberculosis, which was a very frightening disease at that time. And when the German soldiers went to raid the hospital, the doctors explained the disease to the soldiers. And what lay behind those closed doors they were about to storm into. And none of those soldiers dared to go in after that description of Syndrome K. And that's how at least 100 Jews who were taking refuge at the hospital escaped death because Syndrome K was a made-up disease. Uh, the disease was created by a doctor there, the hospital's head physician, to save Jews. They sought refuge there. He began giving them safe haven in 1938, the year that Italy uh, announced anti-Semitic laws. In October, the Nazis raided a Jewish ghetto in Rome. Many Jews fled to that hospital, and they were admitted as patients. 
And the refugees were diagnosed with the new fatal disease, Syndrome K, in order to identify them from actual patients. And when the Nazis came to visit, patients were instructed to cough a lot when soldiers passed their door, and it worked. The Nazis thought it was cancer or tuberculosis, and they fled like rabbits. So it's said by Dr. Vittorio Sacerdoti during an interview with the BBC in 2004, 60 years after the event. They say it's hard to tell how many lives were actually saved by Syndrome K. Counts vary from about uh, two dozen to over a hundred. And after the war, uh, one of the doctors was honored by the Italian government by um, giving him the Order of Merit and the Silver Medal of Valor. He died in 1961. And he was recognized as righteous among the nations by the Israeli government. So in the tradition of Rahab, and in the tradition of Egyptian midwives, and Jonathan and Michael, lives were protected to attempt to prevent an attempt on the murder of God's people. And in the end, we are Christians, saved by the grace of God and washed in his blood. We're not saved by works. And we do our best to make the best judgments we can in sometimes very, very difficult situations. And concealing the truth by telling a lie to protect innocent lives appears to be accepted by God during persecution and extreme situations. Please pray with me. Almighty God, may we never be presented with circumstances that would be so difficult that we would be compelled to lie in these ways. Lord, give us wisdom. And I pray that above all, we would know that we are sinners saved by the grace of God. We do not sin more so that grace may abound. But we ask for grace and wisdom when we face very difficult situations. I pray, God, that whatever people may be facing this week, for those particularly in, in workplaces who are being pressured to use speech to accommodate certain lies there, Lord, give them courage. Give them wisdom. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will.